Amen. All right. Well, let's open the word together. Um, if you don't have a copy of the word of God, go ahead and just raise your hand, get the attention of one of the ushers who's coming down. They would be happy to get a copy of the word of God in your hands as we open up the scriptures together this morning. Speaking of the scriptures, why don't you go ahead and open to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 12 to 18 this morning. Philippians chapter 1, 12 to 18. And as you turn in there, let me give you just a little bit of context about the book of Philippians and the passage that we are in this morning. The letter of Philippians is written by the Apostle Paul, and it was most likely written just a, a few years before the end of his life, probably around 62 AD. And it's a letter that Paul writes to a church that he, in fact, helped to plant. If you were with us when we were going through the book of Acts, you might remember Acts 16 Paul meets this woman named Lydia, who's a seller of purple goods. She comes to believe the word of God preached by Paul, and the church was planted. And Paul is writing to that very church. And the occasion of his writing is in a time of hardship for himself because he's imprisoned. He's hoping to be released. He's confident in that, but it's still not certain yet. He's in prison and he's writing to the Philippians for two large reasons. The first one is he's writing to them to give them encouragement about his imprisonment, to encourage them in it. And the second reason he's writing to them is to exhort them to live a life worthy of the gospel. That's the overall purpose of his writing to the Philippians. And, and in our passage this morning, Paul has just gone through his typical greeting and thanksgiving and prayer like he does in most of his letters. And now he starts getting into the, the meat of his purpose and is now addressing them in regards to his imprisonment. So let's look at that together. I'll read you follow along, starting in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So for the last couple of weeks, we have been having a bit of an unplanned mini-series in our time in the Word together. Two weeks ago, Pastor Grady preached on the urgency of preaching the gospel. Last week, Pastor Garth preached on the awe of, of being in God's amazing grace to us through the gospel. And this morning, we are going to see how we should be viewing our own lives and our own circumstances in light of the gospel. The scripture we just read reveals something to us about how the Apostle Paul views the situation he finds himself in, namely his imprisonment. And what we see is that Paul's worldview is different because of his belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul has a different worldview than one we might expect from someone who finds themselves in prison. So I want to take a minute and I want to talk about worldview. The Oxford Dictionary describes worldview as this. Worldview is a particular philosophy of life 
or conception of the world. Meaning, everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a way that they perceive the world. But if you've been saved by grace through faith, if you claim to have embraced the gospel wholeheartedly, then there are some major things that should have shifted or are shifting in your heart and mind that cause you to view the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this morning, we are going to see that Paul has a worldview, but instead of calling this message the gospel worldview, which I think would have been fair to call it that, I wanted to use an illustration that I pray helps it stick just a little more, an illustration that will prayerfully stand out to you in the weeks and months to come. I'm going to guess that most of you are familiar enough to see a picture like this and know that this is a camera. These are the types of cameras that have one body, but have, can have many different lenses that attach to them. And these lenses change how the camera views the world. It changes how the camera perceives the world. You probably see where I'm going with this, but just humor me for a minute. You have different lenses. For example, you have the fisheye lens. A fisheye lens distorts the world, turns it into this bubble-looking thing where it wraps all of the dimensions around the edges and really causes you to view the world in a way that doesn't actually exist. We know that buildings don't look like that. If they did, structural integrity would be a concern for anything that we built, right? So we have things like the fisheye lens, but then we also have things like the macro lens. The macro lens lets us view things up close, see the beauty up close, see all the little details. These lenses, they're not great for landscapes or, or portraits. They're not great for things at a large distance, but they are amazing for their purpose of seeing things up close. And then you also have lenses that just simply allow you to see more clearly, to see things in grander scale, to see things more focused for the beauty that is in them. There may be one camera body, but there are many lenses in which you can view the world. And here's the illustration that I want to use this morning, church. If you, in your life, have admitted that you're a sinner, have believed in Christ to save you, if you have repented of your sins and you have received his forgiveness, then God has miraculously and gloriously changed your life in a radical way. Because God took the old camera body that was your life and gave you a new one. He replaced your life with his. It says in Galatians 2.20 that it's no longer you who lives, but it's Christ in you. And at the moment of your salvation, you were indwelled with the spirit of Christ. Meaning you were not only given a new camera body that's yours forever, but you were given the perfect lens in which to view the world through. You were given the gospel lens. And the gospel lens is what we see Paul using here in this passage. The problem is, as we go on in life, sometimes we like to try on new lenses. We like to see what's out there. Sometimes a lens gets changed and we don't even notice because it's so similar to the gospel lens. And it happens because we aren't keeping vigilance. And the passage this morning is a reminder that the only way to appreciate the abundant life that we have been given in Christ, like Pastor Garth preached last week, is to view that life through the lens of the gospel. Paul is looking at his life, his situation, through the gospel lens, and so too shall we now. 
We can't possibly see all the things that come with the gospel worldview, but we can certainly see a few of them this morning. So let's start with the first one that we see. Through the gospel lens, we see that hard times have gospel purpose. Hard times have gospel purpose. So Paul's in prison. He's in chains, and he is writing very clearly about the purpose of his imprisonment. And Paul, he's no stranger to hardship. In fact, his life has been filled with it. If we were to think back to the book of Acts for a minute, which has the account of Paul's conversion and his ministry, we're talking multiple shipwrecks in his life, multiple times of imprisonment, multiple riots at his expense, multiple beatings, multiple times of hard relationships in which friends or loved ones he's had to leave or have left him. Not to mention the constant moving, the constant traveling for what he's doing, and the intrinsic burden of just taking care of others and ministering to others. If, if there's someone who has a reason to be just a little downtrodden, a little weary, a little worn out, it might be someone like the Apostle Paul. But that's not where Paul is. And, and why is that? It's because of the gospel and the worldview that is given to him. You see, Paul is looking at his life through this gospel lens, and the gospel lens is allowing Paul to see that there is gospel purpose in the hardship of his life. You see it there in verse 12. Look back at it with me. It says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So Paul shows us that he's viewing things differently than how they appear. It may appear that he's just imprisoned, and physically he is. He's in prison. But what has really happened is far greater than what he can see. He's saying what has really happened is the advancement of the gospel. And there's two ways that the gospel is advanced. Verse 13 shows us that it's there to advance the gospel through the imperial guard. Verse 14 shows us that it's to give boldness to the proclamation of the gospel. So let's zoom in on those real quick together. Let's start with the first one. Verse 13, he says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So the, the first gospel purpose for Paul's hardship was to advance the gospel in the imperial guard and then the rest. So how exactly does Paul's imprisonment do that? Well, it's because it's giving him an opportunity to be in proximity to those, those who he needs to preach to. Paul was a man on a mission, like a literal mission. And he was a man whose life was saturated by and sold out for the gospel. And this hardship that he was experiencing gave him the exact opportunity that a preacher like him needed to be around the imperial guard so that he can preach the good news of Jesus Christ and his gospel. One of the things that we need to walk away with this morning is that the hardships in our life come with gospel purpose. That's what the gospel lens allows us to see. And one of those purposes is that we are given an opportunity to preach the gospel. Like when, when our body is broken or we are sick, where could we find ourselves? In the hospital, around others who are broken, others who are sick and may not have Christ. That's an opportunity. 
When a loved one has passed and you are mourning, you are experiencing difficulty of losing that loved one, where do you find yourself often? Around others who are also mourning and may need the light of Jesus Christ in their lives. That's an opportunity. When you're suffering from addictions or a hurt or a hangup, where could you find yourself? Well, in our church, you could find yourself in a place like a freedom group alongside others who are experiencing similar hurts and hangups, not only an opportunity for you to be ministered to, but also an opportunity for you to help minister the gospel to others. Opportunity. And if you were wrongly imprisoned, where would you find yourself? Maybe around many who were rightly imprisoned or the guards of the prisoners who also need the light and life of Jesus Christ. Opportunity. And the list could go on, but, but do you see it? Do you see how if we put on the gospel lens, we have the immense blessing of seeing hardships in our life as an opportunity to breach the gospel. That's the first purpose we see in Paul's life. The second purpose of Paul's imprisonment is to give boldness to others. We see it there in verse 14. Look at it with me again. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's imprisonment brought confidence and boldness to other believers. But how exactly does his imprisonment give boldness to other believers? Because the thought is, if you saw one of your friends that was doing the same thing you're doing be imprisoned, there could be a potential in which you are frightened, scared, and scattered that you wouldn't want to continue on in what you're doing because you're watching someone else be imprisoned for it, be persecuted for it. But that's actually not the reality of what happens when God's people are persecuted. And that's not what happened here. What we see is that they actually took it as a rally call. Like they saw Paul in prison and they thought, if Paul can preach the gospel while he's in chains, how can I not preach the gospel when I am running around free? If Paul is willing to go to death to preach the gospel, how can I not be willing to preach the gospel when I am living alive, well, and healthy? Maybe this morning we need to make sure that we don't forget that the hardships in our life may not be exclusively for our own sanctification. Don't forget that we are a body of Christ. We are a family. We are in life together. Don't forget that if you're maturing as a disciple, then you are growing in groups alongside others. That you are worshiping in church alongside others. That you are serving in ministry alongside others. And you are abiding in Christ alongside others. What we know, church, is that holiness is a team sport. If you're doing this Christianity thing right, then you're doing it alongside others. And when you experience hardship, don't forget that sometimes that hardship is just as much for those around you as it is for you. So the imprisonment of Paul clearly had gospel purpose. 
And in fact, when we view our lives through the lens of the gospel, we we can often see the ways that God was working not only in our own lives to bring about purpose in the midst of struggle and hardship, but the way that he then worked in others' lives through seeing the hope in our life. So I want to encourage you, if you're going through a hardship or you've been through a hardship recently and and you haven't seen the purpose, it's hard for you, I encourage you to put on the lens of the gospel. And and you can do that. You can look at the cause of Christ in your life, and you can do that by asking a couple of questions. The first thing you could ask is, how can the kingdom be built with what I'm going through? How can the kingdom be built with what I'm going through? Or maybe a second question you can ask is, how could people be encouraged to follow and live for Christ by what I'm going through? How could they be encouraged to follow and live for Christ because of what I'm going through? Put on the lens of the gospel and see that there is purpose in hardship. There is gospel purpose in hardship. Put on the lens of the gospel and take heart because God uses hardship for a grander purpose than what we can physically see. That's what Paul saw. So let's keep going. Paul, after talking about how others have been encouraged to preach more boldly because of his imprisonment, he goes on in verse 15 and he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter, meaning those who are preaching from goodwill, do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, that is those that are preaching from envy and rivalry, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So from these verses here, we learn something about the gospel lens. We see something through it, and that is through the gospel lens, we see godly actions can have sinful motivations. Godly actions can have sinful motivations. Did you pick up on that contradiction in the passage? It says that some indeed preach Christ, which means that their message must be at least somewhat accurate. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't consider it to be preaching Christ, and he certainly wouldn't be rejoicing in it like we're about to see in the next verse. So what they're preaching must be somewhat accurate, and there seems to be this contradiction because there are people who are preaching Christ, and yet they are not living for Christ. They are preaching Christ but they are not doing it out of the love of God towards us through the gospel of Christ. Instead, they're doing it out of hate. They're doing it to hurt Paul out of spite, to rub it in his face. This needs to be for us a sobering reality because the gospel lens reveals it shows us that these godly things can be done with a sinful heart. And the reason this is sobering is because it means that we have to constantly check our own motivations for what we're doing. Like, are are you asking how you can pray for a friend out of sincerity of fellowship and service? Or is it out of a sinful need to feed the gossip monster? Are you raising money or giving money to some missions-related organization for the glory of God among the nations? Or are you doing it for the glory of you among the reputation of the church? Or are you doing it to glory in your own kindness and philanthropy? 
Are you serving as a small group leader or a table facilitator for the good of those around you and the glory of God? Or is it a self-righteous feeding that can come from being important in people's lives, having authority, feeling valued, feeling loved? It's a hard thought to confront yourself with. And this thought gets even more difficult because it's really hard to be held accountable to this. It's really hard to be held accountable to this. And and sometimes it's like we're sitting here waiting to be called out on it. Like we're ignoring the fact that even right now, the word of God is calling us out on it. Like we like to ignore that. Instead, it's like we are expecting our neighbor to just tap us on the shoulder in the middle of the service, lean over and just whisper, sin. And we'll know what they're talking about. That's just not how it normally happens. You see, true accountability is hard because when it gets down to it, the only one who can truly, absolutely see your heart is God. We learn this very thing from a well-known scripture in the Old Testament. When, When the prophet Samuel is told by the Lord to go anoint the next king of Israel, Samuel is going down the line of potential candidates in Jesse's family, and it says this. It says, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Here we go. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You know, even as pastors and preachers, we can only trust in God that when we preach things like this, that you're not just changing your actions, but that you're actually allowing God to do heart work. Because it it is impossible, 100%, for any of your pastors to know what is truly going on in your heart and mind. Like we can read your actions, we can mix that with what we know to be true of your character, and we can lean on whatever type of discernment the Holy Spirit might give us. But at the end of the day, accountability on this is hard because those around you, they're not Jesus. Jesus is the one who knows the thoughts and the heart of man, and he can see through whatever mask you might be putting on around those that you're in accountability with. He can see through anything that you want to hide from. And Jesus shows us this in passages like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, when he says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. He knows their motivation right there. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Like this is a literal example of somebody doing godly things with sinful motivations. Jesus had this teaching and many interactions with the Pharisees in which he revealed that while their actions were godly on the outside, they were sinful on the inside. That's why Jesus called them whitewashed tombs in Matthew 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Jesus taught it. And here in Philippians, Paul is simply just showing us another way that that gospel truth plays out in our lives. There are people who can proclaim Christ. They can literally preach him, call him Lord and Savior, preach him to others, but are actually just whitewashed tombs. Beautiful in action on the outside, full of death on the inside. 
a great application point for us this morning is to put on that gospel lens and reevaluate the godly actions that we take. The hands raised in worship, the words spoken to a friend, the times that we serve, put on the gospel lens and make sure that under sight of the gospel lens, those stand up true and godly. Not just with godly actions, but with godly and good motivations. And if you've got sinful motivation for doing godly things, just stop waiting for someone to call you on it. The word of God has revealed it to you. The Holy Spirit is revealing it to you. Stop waiting for someone else to say it. Turn to God, pray, repent, turn away from your sin. And if you, if you need help understanding how to do that, we've got people that would love to pray with you after service here in the biblical soul care room. And you can reach out to church throughout the week. We have plenty of people that would love to walk you through what it means to repent and turn away from your sin and equip you to do that as well. That's the beauty of the gospel lens. The beauty of the gospel lens is not only does it allow us to see where we need to change in order to line back up with the life of Christ, but it also reveals to us that all we need is a humble heart and the power of God to see life change. So that's the second thing we see through the gospel lens. The third fantastic point to end on because it's a point of hope, it's a point of joy, and that is through the gospel lens, we see we can rejoice in any situation. We can rejoice in any situation. We see it there in verse 18. Look back at it with me. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So Paul, at the beginning of this verse, asked the question, what then? Meaning, so how am I to respond to this? What should my reaction be to the fact that there are some who are preaching Christ with sinful, uh, sinful motivations? What should my reaction be to those that are wanting to hurt me? Rub it in. What should I do? And then Paul answers, I'll rejoice. Because of Christ. Because Christ is being proclaimed, no matter what I'm going through, no matter what the motivation is, the gospel is going forth. Jesus is being preached, and that causes me to rejoice. And then he emphasizes it. And yes, I will rejoice. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is looking at a situation through the gospel lens. And when he evaluates what's going on in light of the gospel, he is found to be a man that is going to rejoice. Because that's what the gospel does. The gospel results in joy. A true and sincere faith results in joy in response to the things of God. In fact, joy is a part of the fruit of the truth of the gospel residing in someone's heart. You might be familiar with the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Look at just those few first few words, the first few fruits that we see there. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And what's that second one? Joy. Fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. When we are saved, we are given the Spirit of Christ to dwell within us. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit brings is joy. And that's a joy that persists despite whatever circumstances we may find ourselves in. Like in 
1 Peter, when Peter is talking about the salvation to be revealed, the living hope of Jesus Christ, the, uh, the inheritance to come, Peter says this, in this, in those things, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Do you see that? Even in the middle of trials that cause them grief, because of the gospel, because of the hope to come, they get to rejoice. So here Paul is sitting in chains in prison, a literal trial that could grieve him, knowing that there are men out there who are preaching the news of Jesus Christ just to hurt him, just to rub it in his face. And Paul's sitting in his prison cell, and what's he doing? Rejoicing. That's the model we see in Scripture. If you belong to Christ, you are given a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And I know for some of you right now, you're like, amen. Like you're ready to sing, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. And you're just ready to like praise the Lord for all the joy that you've been given, the joy that you can see of everything to come. And I'll tell you, I love that. I'll take like 20 of you every single Sunday morning, if you could just line the front right here and help me lead the people of God in worship to joyfully express worship to the Lord because of the gospel given to us, I'll hire you, all right? There's no pay, but I'll hire you and love you. Let's, let's bring you down front. And let's worship with joy. Amen. But I also know that there's some of you right now that that's hard. The night is hard. Weeping is here for the night. And you know, you've heard, you've seen that joy comes in the morning, but right now it still feels sort of dark out. So you're sitting here and you're hearing that if you're looking at your life through the lens of the gospel, that you can have joy in all circumstances, but you're wondering like, how do I get from where I am right now to where you're saying I should be? How do I have joy? I'm told as a Christian that I should, and, and I've had it, or I often have it, but right now, I'm just not there. I want to make a suggestion to you this morning. I want to make a suggestion that the way to have joy as a Christian when you're not feeling it, when things feel hopeless and like drudgery, is to make sure your lens is attached properly. What I mean by that is if you lack joy, maybe you need to be reminded of the great reasons you have for joy in the first place. Maybe you need to take off that lens, evaluate it, look at it, put it back on, make sure it's sitting correctly, and see again the realities of the gospel. The truth of Christ saving you, how Christ saved you, and all the implications of what it means that you have been chosen and you have been saved. That's the truth that inspired joy in Paul is the gospel, the realities and implications of the gospel. God's saving power towards man. So here's what I'm gonna do. I want to, quickly, as we wrap up here, give you six truths that inspire joy. Six truths that inspire joy. Six things, right? These aren't all of them. Can't possibly cover all the reasons we have for joy because of the gospel. But I can share with you six that have been on my heart this week as I've been praying through this message. And I just want to encourage you, you note takers out there, I see you. I, I see you taking notes, all right? That's great. Love it. I'm going to go a little fast. It might be hard for you to write everything you want to write. So a couple options for you. One, you can go back online, watch it right there. Two, we're going to have three points and three points. You could take a picture after three points if you want. 
But my biggest encouragement to you is just take a deep breath and just sit. Just rest in the truths that are about to be read over you. Reflect on the scriptures read over you and see how they can inspire joy in your life. You ready? Six truths that inspire joy. First one, God has written the end from the beginning. God has written the end from the beginning. It says in Isaiah, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So God has written the end from the beginning. And the reason that that's a reason for joy is because it means that the battle is not ours, that the end is already written, that we're fighting a fight that's already been won, already declared. Like the one who authored creation is the one who authored the end and we're just in the middle of it, getting to see what the Lord is doing and knowing because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he has done in history and what he will do. Like that's a reason for joy is that we can just sit in the peace and promise that the God who said, let there be light is the same God who will bring everything to completion at the end of days. Like we sit in that joy of knowing that God has written the end from the beginning. The second one is that as part of this, before creation, God chose you. It says in Ephesians that he, God, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So what we see is that part of God writing the end from the beginning is that we are included in that. That before God said, said, let there be light, before the foundations of the earth, we were included in that end. We were included in that plan. And we get to rejoice in that, that the God of all creation might choose us to partake in the blessings and wonders of what he has to reveal of who he is. Like, that's a reason for joy. Third, great reminder, you are acquitted of all your sins, past, present, future. Great reminders from the last couple weeks with Pastor Grady and Pastor Garth. Paul says in Romans, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Like where you're at right now, you might be seeing some of the consequences of your sin, but the debt of that sin is paid for. Jesus Christ, through his blood, atoned for your sins, past, present, and future. No one is going to bring a charge against God's elect because he chose you before the creation. There's joy in that because there's a freedom in that. There's a weight lifted when we realize that Christ has died for our sins, that he has paid the price and his righteousness has been imputed to us. For God poured his Holy Spirit into you in an overflowing way. It says in Titus, when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, right? by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom, speaking of the Holy Spirit, 
he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God poured his Holy Spirit into us in an overflowing way, meaning he's not just present in you as, as a promise for the things to come. He's that too. He's present in you as a promise to things to come and the seal of your salvation, but he is also present in you as a great helper in times of need, a great sanctifier. It means that because he's overflowing in us, we are not alone in this life that we live. We are not alone in the hardships that we have. The spirit of God is literally indwelled in us. We are not alone. That's a reason for joy. Fifth, you have a living hope and an inheritance waiting for you. We mentioned this earlier, 1 Peter. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope throughout the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance. And what does he say about this inheritance? It's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. And you're being guarded by God's power while you wait for it. There's a reason for joy. You have something to look forward to. You've seen it throughout our entire time in the book of Revelation. What do we have to look forward to? It's a cause for worship. It's a cause for joy. Last but certainly not least, there is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. Paul says in Philippians later on, therefore God has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And where are they bowing? In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God, the Father. When we say that there is power in the name of Jesus and we we say we speak things in Jesus' name, this is not a name it and claim it by the power that we have. This is a reminder of the great name in which we worship, the name above every name that's been given to Jesus. And it's a reminder that at the end of the day, all things are going to bow to him. Anything in my life right now, anything I am facing, any hardship that I have faced and will face, it will bow to him. That's the reminder that we have, and it's a reason for joy because it puts so much towards the Lord and allows us to just experience the blessing of worship and joy. And so here's what I wanna do. As we wrap up right here, I'm gonna pray, and I'm gonna pray that in Jesus' name, we would be reminded of these things right here. We would be reminded of the gospel lens, the things that we want to see, not only in the name of Jesus in our lives, but to those around us as well, that people would be emboldened to preach the gospel And that all of Christ's body would preach it from the mountaintops and the streets, the name of Jesus. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that we can open it up, see what you might have for us, Lord, to further glorify your name, to know your will. Lord, I, I pray in the name of Jesus that we would be reminded of just some of the truths of the gospel lens and what it looks like to reattach it properly I pray, Jesus, that you would remind us of all the realities of the gospel, that we would be going on for weeks and months just seeing all the ways that we have put on the wrong lens and we need to put on the right lens. Come back to the gospel. And Lord, when we say we speak the name of Jesus, we are reminding ourselves of the power that is in it that has already been given the name of Jesus. And when we speak that name over situations and people, Lord, we are praying that they would know the power of the name of Jesus, the joy 
of accepting the gospel and knowing the hope that we have. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.